Well, friends, today we're starting a new series, and uh, I have been endlessly fascinated with some of the stories that are coming out of the church globally. And one of the cultures that I keep going back to is what God is doing in the, in the country of Iran. And maybe you've seen some of this. Uh, there's kind of a sweeping revival that's happening on the margins of, of people in Iran, people finding Jesus in all kinds of incredible ways, through dreams, through interactions. And, you know, we have so much as the American church to learn from our brothers and sisters globally. And I was reading a story. I was reading, there's this uh, website called Elam, E-L-A-M, and they're talking about all these, these different tales of people being transformed by the love and the grace of Jesus. And I'm just weeping by these stories. I'm like, that is the stuff that we're after. I want to read one for you. This woman named Bahar, she says, it's great to be a woman. I imagine it might be, I don't know. It's great to be an Iranian, but it's really hard to be a woman in Iran. A woman in Iran has little identity and security. As an Iranian woman, you are forced to cover up. You shouldn't look joyful because people will judge you. You rarely get encouragement. Praise belongs to men. Women endure the pain of childbirth, but the child belongs to the man. Women must accept that their husbands are allowed to have up to four wives. And if a woman is caught in adultery, it's the woman who is punished, not the man. Iranian women women are tired. We're tired of discrimination, tired of all the hidden tears, and tired of feeling like we are never heard. We wish we were men. Now, can you imagine hearing the gospel in the middle of a life like this? Jesus changes everything for Iranian women. He certainly did for me. I was taught women should keep quiet, but Jesus asks us to speak up for him. I was taught women should mourn, but Jesus gives us joy. I was taught you cannot trust men, but the love of Jesus helps us to love and trust others. I was told God is far away, but Jesus wants to draw near. When an Iranian woman tastes the love of Jesus, like the Samaritan woman in Luke's gospel, she can't remain silent. She can change a whole village. Bahar has personally been used by the Lord to bring over a hundred Iranians to, to faith in Christ. I was sitting across the table from a friend on Thursday, and he was talking about his life since he had moved from the slavery of addiction, being subject to alcohol, and had found some things, this taste of freedom, and putting that down. And he's, he's jumped into faith and started to just like explore, like, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And he, he keeps apologizing. It's always so funny. Like, friends, can I just tell you, pastors are never annoyed when you have a bunch of questions. But it's always the people that have a bunch of questions that spend all their time like, I'm sorry. I just like, and he just keeps asking things. I'm like, I don't know all the answers, but this is so amazing. And just in, at that interaction, I'm like, this is the stuff. This is what we're after. And I hope, I hope at many levels, friends, you can relate that that grace is not something that seems far off to you. That's not something that feels like it happens to other people, but it's something that you're like, yeah. That, that's what brought me in. That's why I'm here today in this room. And for those of you who don't follow Jesus, I, I pray sincerely and earnestly that maybe today you would hear his voice addressing you, that you would see that God is, in fact, never failing, self-giving love. But it's one of the most profound and moving literary tropes, the notion that there is more going on than meets the eye. That a character is swept up in a conflict, often in a world they didn't previously know existed. For those of you who are younger, you're a wizard, Harry. 
opens up all kinds of adventure, all kinds of exploration. You see, the world is often much different than we immediately apprehend. The Pevensey children make their way through the wardrobe. Frodo meets Gandalf. In each instance, the character has come to understand that there is a deeper and truer story in the world, that they themselves are in fact a key part of that story and they have to play their role. But to play their role, they'll have to leave the world behind as they knew it, either to go to some far off place or to see the world with new eyes. That not only life and death hang in the balance, but the fate of the world. And they're gonna have to die to self to meet the challenge, to risk greatly the beauty is, and this is what we'll get into in a couple of weeks, they won't go it alone. You know, I think one of the things that we're often so drawn to by these epic cultural narratives is actually the community of people that are, that are in the battle between good and evil. These friendships that we see and we long for that. But this fight, this mission creates a bond of sisters and brothers rallying around a cause Now, is it any wonder that this archetype that is so prevalent in some of our most important and and cherished cultural stories, that the call to the epic, to the struggle, to the significant purpose resonates so deeply in our bones, that when we hear that, we hear these stories about life change and transformation, we say, that is what I'm after. And we see, we, through entertainment, whatever we're watching, we watch these stories and we're like, that is so cool. I want to be a part of something like that. And I don't think it's any accident that what we find is that when we read the scriptures well, we find that the story that they're telling is exactly this sort of story. As we finished our teaching series in Ephesians last week, we saw that to be a Christian is to be set in the middle of exactly this kind of battle. There is a cosmic enemy, the devil, flanked by powers and principalities that rages against us. But we're given the strength of the Lord and all the armor of truth and righteousness and peace, the word of God. And we're set in a community of people trying to figure it out, not perfectly, bearing with one another, saying your burdens will be my burdens. Your struggle will be my struggle because we are in this together because the Holy Spirit has made us one. Jesus declares and embodies the mission of God through every aspect of his life and his death and his resurrection and today, what I want to do as a way of sort of jumping into this new teaching series that we're, we're focusing on the mission of God is simply to survey what is it that Jesus came to do? What did he understand as his mission? And throughout the series, we'll be using this word mission as a shorthand for all that we're talking about. So I want to give you just a, what I think is such a powerful and brief definition by the theologian, uh, Latin American scholar and pastor, Rene Padilla, He says, he coined this term, mission integral. Notice all these things that he draws out. He says, to witness to the love and the justice revealed in Jesus Christ. You see, Padilla is is emblematic of so many people that experience life from the margins. They understand in a way that many of us are not told or many of us don't understand that the gospel of Jesus is not just about our souls going to some disembodied heaven when we die, but it's about life. It's about the kingdom coming here, right here and right now. That prayer that we just prayed, the words of Jesus given to us, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is not calling us to go to some other place. He's bringing the reign and the rule of God right here and right now into our daily lives. 
And so when we talk about mission, we want to have this holistic sense. And we'll talk about this. We'll come back to this often. This integral mission. Yes, it's about our lives being transformed by the grace of God. But it's also about bread. It's also about people being seen. And when we read the scriptures well, we see that this is who God is. This is who God has revealed himself to be. But I think it's an important thing for us today as we survey what it, what it means to start out on mission, what it means for us to be people who are walking, following Jesus to the places where he is. It, it's, a, it's a common literary strategy. If you're writing a story, when you first introduce a character, you want to give some clues about where the story is going. You want to give some clues about how that character will unfold, the role that they will play. And the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these biographers of Jesus, were storytellers. And so often we miss their brilliance because we don't see the artistry with which they have approached writing about the life of Jesus. It's amazing that we have four different accounts of Jesus' life. And they harmonize, not in the way that they're all saying the exact same thing, but they're singing different notes, but saying the same thing. And today, what I simply want to do is to look at how each of the gospel writers introduces Jesus, because what I think is that each of these writers in introducing Jesus gives us a clue to what his mission is in the world. So let's look. First, let's look at Mark's gospel. Mark is the shortest gospel. Um, We've called it the New Jersey gospel before. It's just very to the point. Um, For those of you who like deep thinking things, Mark may not be for you. You might like John. Um, All right, now Mark's scholars getting mad at me. Verse 1, or uh, chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So Jesus, the first words that he says in Mark's gospel are proclaiming what he came here to do. The kingdom of God is not somewhere far off. It's not somewhere in the future. It's not somewhere outside of your present location. It has come near. And the way that you draw near to this kingdom is simply to repent and believe. To repent means to change your way of thinking, to, to change the way that you see the world. Jesus says one of the things that his mission entails is to bring the kingdom of God near. Let's look at Matthew, the first words that Jesus says. You know, Rene Padilla talks about the values of the kingdom of God. And some of the first words that Jesus says in Matthew are giving these values, one of his most powerful and impactful teachings. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Part of Jesus's mission, his kingdom agenda simply is blessing. 
Jesus is blessing and pronouncing the favor of God upon those for whom all appearances, it would seem decidedly, are those who are not blessed and not favored. Jesus blesses all that is within us that longs for a better story for the world, that long for hunger hunger for uh, justice and righteousness. Jesus blesses the poor in Luke's gospel and the poor in spirit here in Matthew. Jesus pronounces scandalous blessing that upends the power structures and acquisitive pursuits and that shows that God is with us when we mourn and when we suffer. He's pronouncing the values of the kingdom. He's giving us insight into the mission that he came to fulfill. In Luke's gospel account, Jesus turns to the scriptures to summarize his mission. He opens the scripture of Isaiah beginning in verse 18 of Luke chapter 4. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Good news to the poor, release to the captives, blind eyes open. Jesus' mission is a continuation of the story that has long preceded him. The story that began in the garden, the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He turns to the scroll of Isaiah and says, this is the ongoing story of what God is doing in the world. And what God has always been doing in the world is drawing the entire world to himself. And God has been going after those who would be pushed aside, who would be robbed of their voice. And Jesus comes and he proclaims the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor to them. Finally, from John's gospel. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may clearly be seen that their deeds have been done in God. Jesus is the one sent by God. In John's gospel, he's described as being sent by God over 40 times. He came into the world as the fullest revelation of God's love, God's very own self-giving love. Jesus loves the world. The world in John's gospel is often the place that is opposed to God's good purposes in the world. But God will not give up on this world that he has made. Jesus reveals the Father's love fully. His glory fully. His truth fully as piercing unflinching light. He exposes all the poverty of darkness. And he invites us into the light. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That the world would be saved. This is Jesus' mission in the world. Now, we could go through the end of each of the Gospels and see how Jesus very clearly takes this kingdom agenda that he has pronounced for himself and then extends it to his followers. We could go through each one. But today, we're just going to go through the most famous one in Matthew 28 because we want to save the time. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. Jesus, upon his resurrection... 
stands before the disciples and says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we start to see, as we begin this series, we have this clear sense of Jesus' own sense of call, his mission in the world, what he came to do. And then we see that he extends that mission to us. For whatever reason, God, in all of his infinite wisdom, did not take it upon himself to announce to the world that he is God. Like, you think about this. This is very surprising and somewhat, like, ill-advised. Like, what if God just appeared in the heavens every now and then and reminded the world, um, excuse me, I'm God. I made the world. I love you. I'll see you in a while. But for whatever reason, Jesus, upon announcing his resurrection, doesn't go to the heights of power in Rome. He doesn't announce it to the entire world, but he goes to his friends. He announces his resurrection in the same exact small way that he lived his life to his friends and saying, go and share this news. There there must be something about this love that God has extended to each one of us that just has to be shared, that has to be extended to others. Maybe it's something that teaches us to love our neighbors well. But if we have this clear sense of Jesus's mission, his own self-understanding of mission, we have the clear call to follow in his footsteps. The question then becomes, why is our experience, especially in the American church, often so different? Why are our expectations of what God wants to do in the world often so small? Why do we, again, I'm talking specifically of American Christians often, why do we treat the mission of God as something extra to our existence, as something we might make time for? Leslie Newbigin says, There has been a long tradition which sees the mission of the church primarily as obedience to a command. It has been customary to speak of the missionary mandate. This way of putting the matter is certainly not without justification, and yet it seems to me that it misses the point. It tends to make mission a burden rather than a joy, to make it a part of the law rather than a part of the gospel. Newbegin is starting here. He's starting to, to unpack an important question for us today. Just what is the gospel? Is the gospel of Jesus a set of doctrinal statements that we offer mental assent to? And then is the mission just sort of the thing that we have to do in order to declare, yes, we believe those truths, or is God's invitation to his mission something quite different? Look at what Newbegin, he goes on to say, if one looks at the New Testament evidence, one gets quite another impression. Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. That's how you start a church. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The word gospel in the Greek euangelion means literally good news. News is about something that happened. The gospel is the fact of the person of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And this is so important. And this has everything to do with how we approach mission. We have to understand that the gospel writers, the story that they are telling, is a story of something that happened. That Jesus is resurrected, reigning, risen, right here and right now. 
It's not an invitation to a personal faith, a personal set of beliefs, a personal code of conduct. It's an announcement of something that has happened within the confines of the world, that the God of the universe who made the world, who spoke the world into existence, has come into its very confines, has through his own life, death, and resurrection made everything new, that it is a finite happening that is eternal significance. The resurrection of Jesus is about something that has taken place. And when we are entrusted with the mission of Jesus, it is simply bearing witness to that. Friends, we're not called to be the judge, not called to to be able to, to go through and ascertain like every element of the story. We're not called to be the attorney where we can make every argument and every compelling case, as we'll see in just a moment. We're simply called to be witnesses to point to the fact of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The gospel of Jesus, literally good news, is about something that has taken place. And mission asks the questions of us. Do we believe that Jesus is Lord? Is the resurrection of Jesus a nice idea or is it a fact? Now, I I understand When we start talking about the things that we are to do in the world, there's so many ways that that this sense of like uncertainty, what we'll call angst creeps in because either you've seen this done really badly, right? Like you've seen people trying to proclaim the name of Jesus in ways that look nothing like Jesus, trying to grab political power, trying to legislate their way of Jesus, Uh, trying to, you know, almost corner people and like in in sort of an uncomfortable way, you know, maybe you've had a stranger come up to you on the street that's really well-meaning and you're like, oh, I don't really know, but I really want to get out of this conversation. Or maybe you're thinking of yourself in that situation. Is Jesus going to ask you to go out from this place and to talk to total strangers and tell them about Jesus? I mean, it's possible, perhaps. And so all of this begins to sort of creep in. We're like, I don't really know what to do. And this angst starts to rise. And I just want to look at a couple of different ways that we experience this tension between Jesus's clear call to follow him, to obey, to go where he is, and our response to it. And maybe how it explains why our experience is so different than what Jesus has called us to. So I'll go through these. Uh, I'm going to call this missional angst. And what I realized is in going through this, I have a friend uh, named John who uh, has taught some things on this uh, topic. And as I was listing out, okay, this is what I think this name should be. I realized that I was just using his names and titles for things. So we're attributing titles to him. I have filled them with different buckets. And so you can listen to John's teaching on that. You can talk to me after and I'll point you in the right direction. So we're using his topics or his labels, but not his ideas. All right. Missional angst number one is confidence. The mission of the church resides in one of the most precarious places in our culture. Our culture is skeptical of all truth claims. There are no overarching truths. It's kind of the default operating system of our culture, which is itself a truth claim, but we'll get into that later. At the same time, that our culture is skeptical of all overarching truth claims, our culture holds a high regard and a wide tolerance for all kinds of personal truth claims, right? You can live your truth. You can have your faith. Just keep it to yourself, right? And again, this is where that tension creeps in. If the resurrection is about something that happened, if bearing witness to Jesus is about pointing to something that's happened in time and space, then it becomes something quite different than personal values, 
For many, to impose one person's or group's way of thinking is, is often seen as colonial, imperial. There are some well-meaning and thoughtful Christians who think that evangelism, you know, as, as in telling people about Jesus, is somehow wrong because it's sort of a reversion and a regression to colonial ways. And I'm like, I think, I think we're convoluting some things there. But all of this is understandable, right? If you think about the church, the church's PR machine is not exactly firing on all cylinders. There are scandals of abuse in the Catholic, the Southern Baptist, the Anglican churches, uh, the white evangelical ch- church's role in the swell of Christian nationalism in our country, the way that the church has historically treated LGBTQ people, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, and all the stories of narcissism and spiritual abuse that leak out of both mega and micro church alike, and the absolute carnage of souls left in their wake. And you ask yourself, like, okay, if I'm called to tell people about Jesus, why? Why would anyone outside the church have the slightest regard for anything we have to say? And then you may be asking yourself, why would I want to bring anybody in on that? Maybe you yourself have experienced pain in the church and you just don't have a lot of confidence in that. We've missed that our call is not to be confident in ourselves. Our call is not even to be confident in, in, in the church. Our call is to be confident in the cross, in Jesus. We preach Christ crucified. And we're trying to be a community shaped by that fact. But for all its shortcomings, for all its pitfalls, this is what we are called to. We're called to just point to the reality of the resurrection. There is power in telling that story. But our confidence gets eroded. And for many of us, it's not just the, the kind of wider narratives of confidence. It's also our personal narratives, right? Like, I don't know what to say. Like, I don't, I, I have a very, very baseline level of theology. What am I going to say if somebody asks me a question I don't know the answer to? But again, you're not called to be the judge. You're not called to be the attorney. You're just called to be a witness. This is who Jesus is. And that's the call that we've been called to obey. So the question that, that our erosion, our angst around confidence asks us, these are a couple, I would put these up for you just to kind of consider and ponder. Do we obey Jesus' call to be witnesses? And again, this has so many layers. It's not just about speaking. The early church had this statement, we don't speak great things, we live them. Right? And so it's about the the whole of our lives, the integrity of our lives. But at the same time, oftentimes that proclamation of Jesus is about speaking. You know, is that famous St. Francis of Assisi, like, preach the gospel often and when necessary, use words. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. Although if you read the New Testament, they're always using words. So it's probably both, right? Like live in such a way that is compelling where people ask, but also be willing to say, this isn't about me. It's about Jesus. And then the second question that our confidence, our angst around confidence asks us, do we believe Jesus's promises that he will be with us? If you go back to that passage in Matthew 28, it's not about that somehow we would arrive at this point where we are so confident in ourselves that we're able to proclaim the, Je- the message of Jesus that's so compelling, so beautiful. Like friends, there are so many amazing teachers in the church right now from all different quadrants of life. They are brilliant. But you know what? Like ultimately it doesn't really matter because the thing is not about our brilliance. It's not about our level of sophistication, our technology, or our ability to convey the message of Jesus in a winsome way. It's about God's power. It's about us trusting in that. And do we believe, Matthew 28 says, that Jesus says he'll be with us. And that is the absolute bedrock of that promise to go out, and that call to go out and make disciples. So we experience missional angst around confidence. Second, complacency. 
We have to carefully cultivate an imagination for what is possible in our lives, the lives of others, and in our communities. We just genuinely often don't expect that God can do something new. And we certainly don't see how it involves us. So we settle for entertainment, or we channel the God-given energy that should be used for the kingdom, the smaller kingdoms. And in our hearts, we know that there is more, but our patterns and habits dictate that we become stewards of the status quo, meandering on the whims of what is rather than riding the rapids of what could be. And friends, I think this is especially true when we come up against principalities and powers, complex issues like systemic poverty and racism, deeply entrenched and broken family structures, large-scale crises. We run into these things and we're just like, what could happen here? Or how many of you, I know this is my experience, like I just have people in my life, I have to constantly come back to this fact that I, I experience them. I'm like, God, what could you do with their life? And my hope, my imagination becomes small and whittled down. But as we see, the grace of Jesus transforms lives in a moment. And my call is to be a witness. My call is to pray faithfully, not to be the one who saves them, not to be the one who picks them up. But so often we just become complacent in what God is wanting to do in the lives of both our neighbors and in our cities. So a couple questions that complacency asks of us. Complacency is a posture of the heart and the imagination. Do we hunger for God and the things of God? What are we after? And then what habits ignite this passion and hunger? Friends, if we don't have daily rhythms of these things, then that hunger will be suppressed. It will be whittled down into something much smaller. All right, the last missional angst that I see is conformity. We're focused in gaining advancement in the kingdom of this world or building our own kingdom than we are in declaring the kingdom of Jesus. We try to neatly organize Jesus into the complex bureaucracy of our lives. Jesus is not Lord. He doesn't get to be king. He gets to be the manager of the Department of Religious Affairs. We chase after idols of wealth and sex and power and prestige, and we miss the call of Jesus to come and follow him. So the questions that conformity asks of us, how does my life as an apprentice of Jesus look any different than my neighbor who does not follow Jesus? What am I chasing after? What gets me up in the morning? What keeps me up at night? Am I seeking first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and trusting that he will add all of those deep desires in my heart or am I chasing my own kingdom? Okay. So what do we do with the angst? When we focus on the lack of integrity between our own lives, the things that we do and the things that Jesus has called us to, we can often feel condemned, which can result in the same sort of entropy. Like, I'm not going to do anything because I feel so guilty uh, or I'm going to do this out of a sense of obligation. Leslie Newbegin talks about our motivation for mission. He says, I think the deepest desire, the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is. On the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. You see, that call to an epic story, that call to be a part of the wider purposes of God in the world is simply a call to be with Jesus. And it just so turns out that where Jesus is, is in that very precarious place between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light advancing his kingdom, bringing it forward, inviting us forward. I think about in my own life when our kids just want to be with me. They don't really care what we're doing, but they just want to come along. And I want to have that posture towards Jesus. That, That first and foremost, it's just about him. 
Like, I just want to be where you are. And again, as we've seen from Jesus' own stated kingdom agenda, his agenda is to bring freedom and life often to those who are in misery and suffering, to bring salvation, to tell people about God that may have experienced God as something so much worse and to say God is so much more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. And I want to be with Jesus. I want to be where he is. I want to be a part of the things that he is doing in the world. And what we find is that when we want to be with him, all the the angst, the the condemnation, all that sense we feel gets reframed. There's a powerful story about this in John 21. The apostle Peter swore he would never deny Jesus, that he would stay with him until the end. But as Jesus promised him, he would. On the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter denied him not only once, but three times. And Jesus would be arrested and crucified. And from Peter's vantage point, from his perspective, the story was over. Peter, from all appearances, thought that he would never even get a chance to apologize to Jesus, never get a chance to talk to him again. But the surprise of the resurrection declares something quite different. And Jesus is alive again. Now, for Peter... His experience, he's sort of wallowing in this grief, wallowing in the sense that he would never get to atone for what he did. But now Jesus is alive. And, you know, you can almost feel worse in that setting. Because he's like, I denied you. Like, how am I going to go up to him and talk to him? We find this scene in John 21. That Jesus approaches Peter and he's made a breakfast for him. John 21, 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Notice this pattern that we'll see repeat a few times. Jesus simply asks him, do you love me? And then he gives him a task. He says, feed my lambs. A second time, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt to go wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. After this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, in this passage, had gone back to the life that he knew. You see, before Jesus had called Peter to himself, Peter was a fisherman. And Jesus' first words to Peter were, come follow me and I will make you a fisher of people. It's like a call to this epic story. And the disciples are so disoriented by this invitation that they just put their nets down and go. I mean, can you imagine, do you think Peter on that day when he met Jesus thought that he would be one of the most important people in the history of the world? He just put his nets down. He goes and he follows Jesus. But in our story, as we meet the resurrected Christ, as the resurrected Christ meets Peter, Peter has gone back to the life that he knows. He's like, I don't know in my guilt or my shame or my uncertainty or not knowing what to do next. I'm going back to what I can manage and what I can manage is fishing. Peter's gone back to it. But Jesus won't give up on Peter because Jesus has called Peter to more. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. 
And Jesus meets Peter on the beach. He makes a breakfast for him around a fire. It's interesting that in one of the instances where Peter denied Jesus, he denied him around a fire. And if you have any sense for how our psychological memory works, how our sense memory works, the smell of charcoal for Peter would have initiated this kind of olfactory memory. And Jesus, in all his brilliance, in all his subtlety, in all the, the carefulness of grace, makes him a fire of charcoal. The only two times the word for charcoal is used in the Bible. And around this fire, Jesus asks Peter the only important question to send him out on mission again. Do you love me? And notice the question is never asked of Jesus. Do you love Peter? It's assumed. But he asks Peter, do you love me? And friends, today, I'm going to invite the band forward. What we find is that Jesus's mission, which becomes a commission to go and to be sent out, is really just an invitation to communion. It's an invitation to be with Jesus where he is. To come to the table, to receive the restorative life that transforms us, and then to go share that with others. And friends, as we begin this journey as a church into the mission of God, the question that's put to us is simply, do we love him? And notice, there's no way for Peter to prove his love in that moment. There's no way for him to demonstrate, to pull out a list and be like, see, Jesus, I love you. Look at all the stuff I did for you. It's just simply in that moment, Acknowledging, I'm here. I am following you. I am with you no matter what. And then Jesus simply gives him a task, feed my sheep. And friends, for many of us today, this story of Peter meets us in so many beautiful ways. For those of us who just haven't been moving in light of the kingdom, who haven't been, you know, acknowledging that our first call is to Jesus and to obey him, to follow him. This is a call. To move. For those of us who are just mired in shame, maybe we haven't denied God, but something has happened to us, something mess that we have made for ourselves, as Patrick said, and we're just feeling wrecked with that kind of guilt and shame. Jesus is saying simply, Do you love me? And he's declaring by that simple question that I love you and that I will stop at nothing, not only from bringing you to myself but from sending you out into the world with your gifts, with your story, because the world needs it. So if we are to be a people of the mission of God, we have to see it holistically and integrally as Jesus proclaims to us. But first and foremost, we have to answer that simple question. Do we love him? On the night that Jesus fulfilled his mission. He brought his friends to a table. And he demonstrated that the mission of God is not about our talents, not about our abilities, not even about our willingness. It's about God. God pursuing, God giving, God breaking God's self for us. And Jesus instituted a meal He took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you.
took a cup and he blessed it. He said, this is my blood poured out for the sins of the world. That as often as we eat, as often as we drink, we proclaim, we participate in mission, his life, his death, and his resurrection until he comes again. Mission starts at a table. And today, I simply want to invite you as our communion service come forward to just allow the Holy Spirit to meet you just in the same way that Jesus met Peter on that beach. The questions that he has for you under the umbrella of, do you love me? What does God have for you? We believe that God is a speaking God, that he is here in this place. That whether you need a word of comfort as God is showing you that he loves you, that there is nothing that can separate you from his love. Maybe you need a word of just encouragement, of exhortation to go, to live into the dream that God has birthed in your heart. Let us be a people of mission. Let us be people that acknowledge that Jesus has sent us out, that we carry the hope of the resurrection of Jesus in our words, in our actions, in our stories. I'm going to pray over us and we'll come to the table. Jesus, thank you, God, for your presence, Lord, here in this place. God, may it never fail to astonish.